0: welcome to episode 69 of Special Parents Confidential. I'm John Pellegrini. Autism Goggles is a blog and website that's run by Maxine Scherer and her son Daniel Scherer-Strom. It's an outgrowth of their advocacy service in York, Ontario, Canada. Their efforts to enlighten people about autism have gained a huge following, not only in Canada, but around the world. Both Daniel and Maxine were diagnosed with autism. Their abilities to describe in detail how people with autism think, function, and cope in a world that isn't necessarily designed for them to succeed has opened a lot of people's eyes. It's helping to change the way people view those with autism. Their goal is to help the so-called neurotypicals see the world the way the people with autism see it, by putting on autism goggles. For this episode, we're interviewing Maxine, and in our next episode, we're going to talk to Daniel. I started off by asking Maxine if she had been diagnosed with autism early, like her son Daniel, or if the diagnosis came later in her life.
1: No, later, much later. Okay. Um, actually, it, it it was Daniel. <laughs> it was Daniel. Ah. Um, because uh, in my in my professional life for the last uh, several years, I've been an autism consultant. I actually work for a very large. Um, Nonprofit agency, and in that role, I was very often, and I still very often um, identify moms who may be on the spectrum and siblings, female siblings, who may be on the spectrum. Right. So I just, I, I am not a diagnostician, but I just would recognize those things. And and some of these women were, you know, doctors and artists and very successful in their lives. And, you know, it just would have been the last thing anybody thought of. And so I I remember having a conversation with Daniel and saying, you know, I, you know, I have met so many women in my work and been able to help to give them some answers for their lives and for the struggles their daughters are having. I'm not really sure why I'm able to do this or why I'm recognizing the autism And he looked at me, and he's really a funny guy, John. And he said, "Uh, seriously, you don't know? And I had no idea what he was getting at. And so he said, you are totally autistic. And I just thought he was off his rocker. And um, long story short, he said, oh, I get it. You tell me that it's just a way of learning. It's just another way of being human. But you're embarrassed. And... So you're not even going to talk about this. Fine. I I get it. Hypocrisy. So it cost me a lot of money. And um, I went for full assessment to prove him wrong. And uh, I was not able to prove him
0: wrong. Oh, boy. Little bugger.
1: <laughs> yeah. So it was very interesting, and I'm super glad that I did it.
0: Yeah. Right. Now, did you become a special education advocate because of all your work and trying to get help for Daniel in school, or were you already working in advocacy because of your own experiences in school?
1: So let me explain that. So Daniel's the youngest of my four children, and he's younger by nine years. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, I'd already uh, come to understand many of the systems in the school. And when Daniel was diagnosed, there was very little knowledge of Asperger's. So ASD level one in school system. Uh, and so I, uh, being a woman on the spectrum, immersed myself in in. Everything related to Daniel's struggles mm-hmm. until I sort of became an instant lay expert. And as I learned things, I helped other people. And I had a, a successful business at the time, and so I knew a lot of people and. Everyone has children and everybody knows someone who knows someone who's having a struggle. And so this is how it started. And so I did it concurrent with the other things in my life. And I I did it for a long time. So I was writing them, uh, writing letters, uh, revising IEPs, um, teaching them how to message things to the board, as in... um, Tie the behavior or the challenge that you are seeing to the documented needs and then go with an accommodation or a suggestion that they can apply to mitigate or improve that problem. Right. So it was sort of coaching parents how not to lose their mind with the school board, because when our children are being hurt, emotionally and sometimes physically with bullying um, you know it's it's more difficult to be rational in our approach so that's really how it happened the advocacy has been going on for about 20 years concurrent to other things that I do in my life.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting uh, just hearing you talk about it. it sounds like uh, most of the uh, special education support uh, advocacy work in Canada is pretty much the same as it is here in the United States. So, not much is there's not a whole lot of difference as far as what parents have to go through to get uh, the kind of help they need.
1: Right. And, and so, you know, each of the provinces, we have. Uh, 10 provinces and three territories in Canada. And they're each, you know, they operate independently. Uh, education is a provincial responsibility, not a federal responsibility. And within each province, each of the school boards, and I think we have about 70 in Ontario, maybe maybe 72, but I think it's 70. And they each operate like their own little fiefdoms, their own Oops, I mean, their own little corporations, and they interpret the legislation and they spend their money as they see fit. And so there's not consistency, even if you move from one uh, area to another within a province. Or one region to another, which can be, you know, from one major intersection in a metropolis to a, you know, two miles away, you may be getting different supports and services interpreted differently and provided differently. There's no consistency.
0: Ah, okay. So, yeah, that would that would be—well, you know, and we do have something similar in that regard here in the United States. I mean, there is the Americans with Disabilities Act, and then there is the Individuals uh, with Disabilities Education Act that's supposed to be the oversight. But they do give a lot of leeway to individual states, uh, individual counties, and then individual school districts themselves to decide— uh, what the support level is going to be for uh, whatever the district chooses.
1: Right. Well, we're we're really fortunate in the province that Daniel and I live in in Ontario, because we have the Ontario Human Rights Code, and it sort of um, guarantees equal access to all provincial services and or to all services, including education. And uh, although school boards don't always do that. If you take it to Ontario human rights, the onus is on school boards to prove that they can't do it. Mm. You know, it, they, they have to try to provide it to the point of undue hardship. And um, very often financial raise reasons are not enough to prove undue hardship because especially if you are a big school board, can you find the money elsewhere? Can you do it in a different way? They really um, push them, and they very often find in favor of the parents.
0: Ah, well, that's good. Yeah, that's that's one of the big differences. Then I would say is that uh, uh, the school districts here in this country are given a lot more leeway which uh, they shouldn't, but, you know, they. it all depends upon who's in charge of what, I guess. But uh,
1: Well, they are given, I, I don't want to um, give a, the wrong impression, mm-hmm. they do have tremendous leeway, but we have some remedies, but the remedies are, um, you know, it's an onerous process, it's a difficult process, especially for parents already dealing with kids with special needs, who has the extra time to fill out lengthy applications, to wait on you know, on the telephone for a very long time to get simple answers and clarification. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, there are lots of barriers, so they don't make it easy, but For those who have the fortitude, there there are some remedies.
0: That's that's good. That's good. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to assume that uh, special education supports in Canada are like they are here in the United States, in that they have changed over the years since back when we were probably in school. A number of uh, things uh, have become a little bit more integrated.
1: Yeah. So in the 60s, they first started to. uh, I think it was the 60s. They first started to talk about the Ontario Human Rights code right which affirm equal rights to services Mm -hmm. including education and then in the 1980s we had something called bill 82 um, which was supposed to guarantee children access to education regardless of disabilities but then they gave schools five years to you know come up with their special education plan Mm. Um, in in the 1990s they decided you know maybe they 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 always thought that integration um, was a good idea, that kids with with disabilities and special needs should be integrated into regular classrooms. But in the 90s, they decided that um, maybe there was some merit into having different placements, placements meaning levels of support and perhaps different environmental in different settings. And so um, out of that, we've got things like community classrooms where um, some school boards have autism community classrooms where there are, for example, six kids in the class and uh, a specially trained teacher with uh, one or two special education support staff. But integration remains, in theory, the, um, the benchmark. Mm-hmm. So that's okay. where we are now. On paper, things look good. In reality, our system of support is not working for children with autism. They continue to try to bash square pegs into round holes. And uh, I forget the wonderful uh, writer who owns that quote, but he said something like, The problem with having a square peg is that not that it's so much work for us to pound it into that uh, round hole, but at In the process of doing that, we destroy the peg. So they're not really getting that autism is a unique culture. And you must understand how the autistic learner experiences the environment and learns in order for them to be successful
0: right. And along with that, you know, one of your most popular articles, uh, on your, uh, autism website, the autism goggles, which I want to talk to you about how that came about too, but I, I just wanted to get to this one article cause I thought this is really neat. It's called what good teachers know about teaching kids with autism, a Wish List." Yeah. you know, the yeah. list is really long, but I think you captured just about every complaint that parents could possibly have about mm. how kids with autism are treated and what the, how the parents are treated by the schools and educators. Can you you talk about some of the experiences you went through that helped you put that list together?
1: Well, I'm going to say that I keep adding to that list because, um, you know, a lot of what I do revolves around helping parents whose kids are suffering or struggling in the school system. And I do want to say that Daniel's experience stands out among all of the individuals I've ever supported. And I'm, I'm not sure if that's because we were sort of in the in the first wave of ASD Level 1 Asperger's kids uh, or because I w- I made myself educated and had the right approach with staff or just because they were wonderful. But he was quite good. So though he's had a few unfortunate experiences, um, most of the ones that stand out for me are those that I've supported for other families. And I guess the most common thing I see among the most common are are teachers who tell parents that they need to medicate their child mm-hmm. uh, and that message is delivered in different ways but, um, for parents who are struggling, because uh, you know they're getting calls every day because their child won't sit still, uh, their child's disrupting the classroom, and the teacher calls them in and says, "You know, I re- you you need to take your uh, child to the doctor and see about medication because he's disrupting the classroom and he's not learning." And is very intimidating for parents, and they many people have a real deference towards educators, or they're intimidated by them, and um, you know they don't understand that teachers have zero education in that field; they are not qualified to make those recommendations, and in fact shouldn't be doing that. So a good teacher knows that is not part of their purview. Um, the other thing I, I see. Quite a bit is um, teachers shaming children for being autistic. Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean, we know this is a social communication disorder. So when a child with autism is awkward or inappropriate in their social approach, duh, this should not surprise anyone. But what it should do, is it should, it should say to the adult, it should say, oh, Johnny or Emma, they don't understand how to ask John to play. So if I go over to you, John, and I pull the truck out of your hand, what I don't want is the teacher saying, Max, what are you doing to John? That's rude. Now you go sit in your desk. I'm going to speak to you later. We don't want that. We want someone to put on their autism goggles, and we want them to experience that from the child's perspective. And we want them to say, hmm, Max wanted social connection with John. This is awesome. But she also doesn't seem to understand social approach. We want teachers to shame or adults to shame the child. We want them to do something like this. (gasps) Max, you wanted to play with John. Good girl. Come here. Let me show you how to ask him. So that's something I, yeah, I see that all the time. Mm -hmm. Now, the other thing I see is that children with autism have a very strong emotional response, aversion to being corrected, to making mistakes, to being asked to do something over again. The great Dr. Tony Atwood says that individuals with ASD have a pathological need not to be incorrect. Now, please don't mistake that for narcissism or, you know, uh, a need to be perfect. It's just that Autism is a pervasive development disorder. So we are corrected potentially in every area of functioning, life skills, social skills, communication, our sensory preferences, all day long in every setting by everyone. Challenges with our motor skills, with our fine motor. And so, you know, we move slower. We have slower processing speed. We're rushed all day long. We don't seem to be able to meet the expectations of others in typical ways. And so we get a little touchy about being corrected. So a great teacher, a good teacher takes this into consideration all the time with every approach, and knows that they can correct, and they can coach, and be positive about it, doesn't mean we ignore mistakes, it means if a child got eight out of ten on a paper, we write, great job, and if we think that they need more lessons on the two that they got wrong, we have another opportunity at another time to reintroduce more lessons around that. If a young child is doing some math, and you know you see that they're they're getting some answers wrong, you might sit down beside them and say, "Oh, you're doing a great job, Bug. can I do some too?" You go four plus four, and you get an answer is them. You go eight. Oh, yay! I got it right. And then they do five plus four, and you go five plus four is. 10. Oh, no, no, no. I think I got that wrong. Let me try again. And then you count another way and you still get it wrong. And you go, Oh, I got it wrong again. I'm going to try another way. What else can I do? I know I'm going to count with some pennies. And then you count with your pennies and you get it correct. And then you go, okay, well you keep doing your work on ask me if you need any help. You demonstrated the correct way without correcting them. And good teachers know to do that because if we shame them, we shut them down and we increase their anxiety.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, it's interesting because that is the way all teachers should approach things with all students, not just the kids with special needs, because, you know, a constant criticizing, no matter how well the kid's doing, is going to cause problems.
1: Yes. Yes, you would think so. And (laughs) I'm going to say Most teachers, once they understand that this is what a child needs and why so as you know if i give a a more lengthy explanation of of uh, this pathological need not to be incorrect they're all over it it's not like um people are approaching this with with nasty intent teachers most teachers go into this profession because they want to help children but it is it is like a different culture that we we need to um share with people and help them to understand. And again, this is, this is why the autism goggles name is such a great idea. And that was actually Daniel's idea was the autism goggles, because I was going on and on about, we've got to help people have a clearer understanding by uh, thinking of this through the autism lens. So He thought of autism goggles. And anytime we do a workshop, we do full day workshops and we're making an important point. We put on the most ridiculous looking goggles you can find. We've found some of the funkiest looking things. So people can think of us in those silly looking glasses as they're remembering in the moment what slow processing speed means when you're trying to get your child ready in the morning. For example. Right. So, sorry, I went off on a bit of a tangent there, but. (laughs) That's okay.
0: Well, that that covers what I was going to ask you about uh, the idea for autism goggles and all that. I think that's just a fabulous way of uh, demonstrating, not just to teachers and not just to educators, but to people in general, you know, think about it from another perspective. Think about it. Put your autism goggles on and see what it's like.
1: Yeah, exactly. You know, we just say to people that. You know, John, imagine if you were called into, I don't know if you have a boss, but if you were called into your boss's office Mm -hmm. and called out for some work that you did, and then they wrote a letter home to your partner to to tell them about the bad work that you did and, you know, ask them to help fix you. Now, this is an experience our kids have very, very frequently throughout their day, uh, often more than hourly, um, and we really encourage parents to approach everything with the child's dignity in mind because the the assault on the person's dignity is so constant so pervasive that How can it surprise people that kids with ASD grow up not believing in themselves, grow up with low self-esteem, that the negative self-talk starts, that they are afraid to try anything? They develop this risk aversion because they learn that whatever they try is up on on the first attempt and even the tenth attempt if they are not taught properly. And if the value of what we're asking them to do isn't communicated and the relevance of what we're trying to teach them isn't communicated, you know. And so we, we really are, as a society, causing harm to these children. We are really um, shaping the direction of lives and not often in a positive way. I mean, the mental health statistics are absolutely devastating um, Daniel just gave the opening keynote speech at the Geneva Autism Symposium uh, was it last month, the end of October. And he, he broached a very delicate subject. We, we thought the opening they'd want something positive, but we just couldn't go there with everything that had gone on in our own lives in the last two months and people uh, that we had, with people we had helped as well. And he talked about, you know, uh, some recent studies, that show the side rate in verbal autistic people without cognitive delay. So Asperger's, ASD level one, especially women, is nine times higher than the rest of the population. Wow. It's just not acceptable. And we die of all causes 18 years sooner and that's for cognitively capable verbal autistic people not okay i mean clearly autism is not a mental illness or a mental defect but if you grow up not believing in yourself and you don't learn the skills necessary to initiate or maintain social relationships or jobs mm-hmm. what's the use oh yeah you know this this becomes the mindset what's the use and so the onus is on And the clock is ticking for our systems of of support for our education, departments of education to get with the program because it matters to families and lives are literally depending on it. I mean, there's the research is eight or 10 years old now about children with autism. I think it came out of Penn State. Children with autism thinking about suicide 28 times more often than typically children. What the heck?
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, you know, it's because like you said, this is not a mental illness. This is a communication problem. And one of the most frustrating aspects is when you hear people, and not just teachers, but everywhere, people say, you need to keep that kid at home until they learn how to behave. Well, they're not going to learn how to behave if you keep the child isolated. That's, right. you know, that's ridiculous. Uh, if people need extra help to uh, understand social situations, the absolute worst thing you can do is just isolate them.
1: Well, you know, there's just so much in that. So, I mean, the one thing that that is really not understood or supported is, is the fact that autism is really two things, a unique way of learning and processing information in the brain. And that includes how we experience the physical environment. We know now that up to 90% of individuals with ASD have sensory and motor differences that are the cause of their emotional responses or the cause of their behaviors or are contributing to those. So if we are treating that as a an aside, as an incidental, we are going to continue to get it wrong. This must be broached when we're trying to develop um, supports and curriculums for kids with ASD, because otherwise it's going to be like playing a gigantic game of whack-a-mole. Maybe you will, you know, sort out this particular problem this day, but it's just going to crop up, pop up again, Uh, another day in another area you know and and in terms of motor skills there's some fantastic research emerging now about the correlation between the real challenges in motor motor issues and movement that people with autism have and you know if you know that you're no good at at basketball or you're you're not good at running or you're you're good at some things with your motor skills but other things you're really not good at and so you don't join in, or people don't want you to join in, it has an impact on your social opportunities as well, and in how safe you feel in your physical environment. So it absolutely has to be addressed. It's like, it's like our education system is um, continuing to look at supporting autism through a typical lens, and they really haven't, opened their mind and invited in the real autism experts to help them to craft meaningful supports.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that has a lot to do with it. You know, they're just, uh, they're making up their mind based on what they read rather than what the statistics and the actual experts have to say about this stuff.
1: Right. And often the actual experts are the people with autism.
0: Well, of course, you know, And
1: there are a lot of educated people with autism, and they should be asking those people, and they should be asking the nonverbal people. They should be asking the people who are most impacted or affected by the choices that the neurotypical decision makers are making.
0: Yeah. I remember reading somewhere, some place at one time or another, it's not that a nonverbal person isn't communicating. It's just, you don't know how to listen.
1: Yes. (laughs) Um, you know, a, a, a few years ago, um, I was very involved in bringing a symposium to our region called autism rocks. And it was a two day symposium and um, it was all autism-proud stuff. And so one of these sessions was on communication. And we brought in two nonverbal teenagers to present. And, you know, the people who attended, uh, the, the feedback that we got indicated that people could not unsee or unhear what they had just experienced and that they would never again view a severely autistic individual because one of them was so severely impacted that they had two support workers plus his mother with him and the other one looked on the surface like a typical individual but uh, but she was nonverbal her actually her name is Emma Zerker you mm-hmm. know Emma Zerker
0: uh, no, I'm afraid I don't.
1: You could, you could Google her. She's awesome. I will. And uh, and she just came up from the States with her mom. But they did by with the iPad. Right. So just because the arrogance of educators who think they know it all they don't know how to access what people who communicate differently know therefore they discount the intelligence of those individuals and when you read the writings of Emma Zurcher or um, you you see how brilliant this other young boy Adam is you know, you realize we, we're, we're getting it very wrong as a system of support. So, yeah, if they think that individuals um, with autism, they really who are so-called high functioning, which we we don't appreciate the high functioning label, mm-hmm. they think high functioning means no needs. And when you uh, are so-called low functioning, they really don't care about or pay attention to your strengths.
0: Right. Right. They just think that, well, can't talk, so can't learn, can't do anything.
1: Right. That you learn to fold a mean towel.
0: Right. Yeah. Right. Um, What is the current situation with special education in Canada? Are are support programs being adopted or revised, or has there been any progress in training teachers to work with special needs students, including autistic kids and...
1: Well, I I can't speak to all of Canada other than to say some parents move from province to province hoping to find better um, supports, but I can speak to teacher training in our province, and I can say teacher training. Um, Teachers are not required to um, know how to work with autistic learners in order to get their degree, but our province requires them to teach whoever sits in their desk, uh, in a desk in their classroom. I will say that, again, most teachers, you just need an open mind and a good heart and respect for parents and the learner to help someone to do well in a classroom. You, as an educator, just need to be okay asking your administrators to get you some some help in the classroom. But um, we really do need to change teacher requirements before we allow individuals or or teachers to work with autistic learners because you know the not knowing and the wrong approaches can do harm to their um can do harm because our kids can Focus on one thing that a teacher says and not let it go. And even years later, they can't let it go. And it informs decisions that they make, directions that they take, their belief in themselves or lack thereof. You know, whereas a typical child may be able to let it go and move on, maybe not so much for an autistic child. So, yeah, the lack of teacher education is a huge piece of uh, the challenges we have in our province.
0: Hmm. So, the, um, is there a special education training type program for teachers like there is here in the United States? I mean, there are teachers here who specialize, and there's actually degrees. Uh, in yeah. education for a specific special education support. Do they have anything like that?
1: Well, there's not a separate degree that I'm aware of, but you can get additional qualifications. So my daughters are both uh, teachers and uh, to get your special education qualification in my province, it's three additional university courses. Um, the daunting part of that is that anybody can do that by taking those courses online. It is the theory of special education and teaching all curriculum to all exceptionalities, Hmm. not just autism. Oh, okay. We do have, they do have ongoing professional development available to them on professional development days. And I would imagine that certain trainings are offered to them, but, you know, I don't know if you have anyone in your life who's on the spectrum, John, mm-hmm. but you need to know autism from the inside out. You cannot just learn it academically. Right. You've got to get in there mm-hmm. to understand it. So, you know, we can't be pretending that full day seminars, you know, uh, once a year, somebody, an autism expert, we need to screen people for attitude and approach And um, as well as for their training and academic qualifications.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, it's funny. It's like you said, it all comes back to, you know, teachers telling other teachers how to teach to autistic kids, but they're not even encountering or asking the autistic kids or the parents of the autistic kids what they actually need. Right. Right, yeah. Um, now, one of the most frustrating situations for parents, of course, is when the supports in the schools start working well and the child starts to make progress. And then, and this happens here in the states as well. Schools decide that the child no longer needs the academic support because everything's going well. And we, we as parents, know that this is insane, but schools keep insisting on doing this. Now, you've written about this in recent posts. What do you say to school administrators and school educators when this kind of thing- Uh, occurs
1: yeah it just it blows my mind because as i've said they create fantastic guys they actually deliver the support they have great staff with the right approach and then when the the student is being taught just right and the environment is just right so they feel safe and secure the school board goes our work here is done and they pull the supports so you know they approach the coping behaviors that they're seeing in the child, so the challenging behaviors or the lack of social success, they seem to approach it like it's like it's an illness. So this is what we need to do to to an illness or an injury this is what we need to do to to fix this broken arm or to cure this cold and soon that that virus that bacteria will be gone and when it's gone we can go back to how we were before or when when the bone is set we can take off the cast you know it's just so dumb you know it's 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 hard to find the right words to describe how irrational it is in my article i said it was an un educated response. And that's really what it is. They should be ashamed of themselves for pulling away supports from the children who still need it. It doesn't mean autistic students always need one level of support, but the amount of times that the thing that's making the difference is pulled away and suddenly is unacceptable. It really demonstrates an ignorance, of the needs of some autistic learners. So I guess that's what I would say to them. It's an uneducated response. You need some schooling.
0: Right, right. Well, you know, it's like it's exactly as you said. There's no cure for this. You can support it. You can help it. But to remove those supports is to revert back to the way things were.
1: Right. So not only can it not be cured, it is a way of being human so it doesn't need to be cured but the way that our we have evolved in north america to provide education to children and and the factories in which we churn them out aren't conducive to learning for many autistic learners so that's what they need to wrap their head around this is not a mental illness it doesn't actually even belong in the dsm 5 that is my personal opinion because it's not a mental illness mm-hmm. it's a learning difference and we need school boards to start to embrace that
0: yep yep definitely and
1: it makes financial sense if they would just get it they would stop having to pay all of the special um, supports that they have and all the professionals that they're having to call in
0: exactly Exactly. There would be so much so much easier to just get them to wrap their heads around that and we can only hope mm-hmm. it will happen soon. Another article that you posted that I thought is just fascinating and it really opened my eyes because I hadn't even thought about it this way. Why are experts missing our girls on the autism spectrum? And the article raises a lot of issues with the fact that far more girls probably have autism than are commonly diagnosed because, you know, you hear it all the time, medical experts saying, well, it's much more prevalent in boys than it is in girls, but that's just not true. Can you give some details about that article and why the experts keep missing these facts?
1: Sure. Um, I, I actually wrote that article after a week of just very daunting meetings with young women whose lives to that point had really been destroyed by the ignorance of the system of supports to the distress that these children or these people faced when they were children and then teenagers. So the problem is that though the prevalence of girls to boys being diagnosed is 5.5 boys to 1 when they are little, so when they're toddlers, by adulthood, the actual number is 1.8 boys to every one girl Mm -hmm. or sorry. That's right. So, you know, and perhaps one day we'll find out that it's even higher than that. But the fact is that, that we were always there. It's just that if you think about the social communication challenge, that is autism, it often manifests in, for example, Social shyness. So somebody being coy and shy and hiding away, that is considered, um, in a very stereotyped and sexist way, a feminine trait. And so we don't get too alarmed. Clumsiness, you know, and not being so interested in sports. Again, You know, we are not so alarmed about seeing that in our girls as we are in our boys, and that does a real disservice to our girls. So girls are superficially good at social interaction because they learn to mask and imitate. They know they don't get it, but we stand back and we figure out what is expected of us in that situation. I remember going on a class trip uh, in Toronto to Queens Park Circle and we were, the teacher was telling us something and I was thinking to myself, how do I look smart and interested in what he says? And I, I remember trying to change my facial expression and you know, what, what often happens with girls is that they, they fake it during the day. They fake it at work or at school and then they are completely exhausted and if they go to they they go to work all day they have to totally cocoon and withdraw and um, just kind of recover from the social exhaustion so people don't recognize that these might be autistic traits you know Girls often can be, we either see the girl who's a little angel, you know, she's very good academically and she's quiet and she's shy and never makes a peep, or she's very intrusive and bossy and uh, always in people's faces, but... We don't tend to raise the red flag in the way that we do with our boys. And girls also tend to internalize their distress, whereas boys, you might see externalized behavior. So um, aggression or um, cursing, that sort of thing. Um, girls may turn that inward. And so we see a uh, lots uh, of depress- symptoms of depression, High prevalence of eating disorders. So, the prevalence of those already diagnosed with eating disorders, uh, um, evidence is suggesting that uh, in the high 20s, so 26, 27% of people diagnosed with eating disorders are teenagers, teenage women, and girls on the spectrum. So, again, they're diagnosed with anxiety, depression. Um, if they do have meltdowns, then people are saying bipolar, um, rather than somebody stepping back, looking at all of this history and all of the traits and saying, is there another answer here? Because when we get the right answer, we can give the right considerations and supports, and then we can watch some of those challenges literally fall away.
0: Right. Right. And you know, it's uh, another one. They always throw out is moodiness or, you know, <laughs> other situations involved in that. And they just, uh, they, yeah, it's, it's like they ex they expect and accept that kind of behavior in girls, but uh, right. not in boys. That's,
1: that's very right. So, you know, they will, if a girl um, cries easily uh, or has a meltdown because of something, we tend to call her a drama queen mm-hmm. uh, or, you know, or to the doctor and get her diagnosed with bipolar. Right. This is what very often ha- happens. Or borderline personality disorder. And those are not diagnoses. um, You know, those are mental health issues. And I'm not saying that those uh, are not uh, comorbid in some people. But those things do not go hand in hand with autism. And if we are constantly not supporting someone in the way that they need, you know, you you can push people to meltdown. Right. We could make your environment so uncomfortable, John, that perhaps you might, you know, yell or shut down. We could do that to anybody. But, you know, it's constantly done to many young girls and boys on the spectrum because people don't accept that they're doing it or know what it is that they need to do differently. So I said we buy our ignorance as a society we are costing lives and ruining lives.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And
1: girls do kill themselves uh, at, a, at the highest rate. When I cited that statistic earlier, that the nine times um, committing suicide at a rate nine times higher than the general population, particularly girls with ASD level one.
0: Right. Right. It's uh, it's something that just really needs to be addressed and acknowledged, and things need to change there, definitely.
1: Well, I, I believe so, because, you know, people with ASD Level 1 are average to superior intelligence. They are very creative, out-of-the-box thinkers, and uh, girls on the spectrum are known for being, um, you know, certainly some excel in math, some in science, um, but there are many, many who excel in art and music. Um, Daniel and I often say we believe it will be someone on the autism spectrum who finds the cure for cancer. Because, you know, when we are interested in something, we're able to focus on it uh, to the to the exclusion of other things, like who's doing what to whom and who's wearing what. You know, we they can maintain their interest in this area uh, and persevere until they achieve what it is they're after. So I think the onus is on all of us to support all of our children. And um, it would be to the detriment of society not to support, uh, you know, the unique... Learners that are artistic children.
0: Definitely. Definitely. Well, it's like they say, you know, the major inventions over the years, over the centuries, over the millennia were probably made by people with some form of Asperger's or autism. Uh, yep. Yeah.
1: Agreed. Because yeah.
0: they're the ones who spend all the time looking at it and trying yeah. to figure it out. Exactly. Another post you made recently on the Autism Goggles Facebook page is that you hear a lot from parents that are just completely convinced that if they find the right classroom setting or just the right teacher, just the right doctors, and that their child's behaviors and challenges will disappear. Can you talk about your response to that assumption?
1: Well, you know, I I, I really believe that my job, like when I'm, when I'm doing my work, as an autism consultant is to really support the parent and to elevate and lift them up. But at the same token, they really need to wrap their head around the supports that actually do exist and the supports that don't exist. Because if you sit around waiting for some, you know, um, fairy godmother to step in and, and help you through this, it's just ain't going to happen. So parents... Uh, Children do best when parents are educated and when parents educate themselves all of their child's sensory needs by going and getting a comprehensive sensory assessment that includes all the motor challenges and then finding someone to tell them what that means for their child because the report on its own is just a piece of paper. And then they get a psychoeducational assessment so they can understand how their child learns. And then they get someone to interpret that for them and tell them what that means for their child. Um, So I, I cannot emphasize to parents what a difference it's going to make for their children when they accept, A, autism is not something your child is going to grow out of, but they will become... The gaps will become more apparent if you do not teach the children the skills they need to know as they get older, and that most challenges and most things that make the child's life difficult can be mitigated, prevented, or uh, completely supported if parents understand just where to look for help and how to get it. So really parents are their answer to their own prayers uh, or parents are the magic bullet. Um, But, you know, uh, you know, at first blush it can be a little daunting to parents who are confused by what they're seeing to realize what the heck, nobody understands this, but really very few people do. So that's what I tell them as gently as possible, never as bluntly as that.
0: Right, right. And um, as as a very famous politician said, so often, we are the ones we've been waiting for.
1: <laughs> yes, yep
0: the parents are the yep. ones who can step in and make things happen.
1: Absolutely all of the best things that have happened in our province related to autism supports were started by parents who were, mad as hell and weren't going to take it anymore. Exactly. And, uh, I think the time is, is the time has come again. And, uh, if I, if I could afford to retire, I would lead that charge, but, uh, I can't do that because I love my job and I, I love my agency actually. So I will continue to support parents in the way that I do.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, um, what are your hopes for the future of special education, and how people with special education and special needs in general are able to function in society?
1: Well, my hope is that uh, someone in the powers that among the powers that be understands uh, what they've been getting wrong. And um, that they develop a provincial and national approach to providing education for kids with autism um, and special education in general. That they develop an approach to neurodiversity that, in practice and not just on paper and in word, um, values all different types of learners. We absolutely have to do this, as I said, because. People are dying from the ignorance and, you know, we have got to stop this.
0: Yep, definitely. Lives are on the line, whether we want to acknowledge it or not.
1: Lives are on the line. And I, I, you know, when I'm working privately with parents, I don't raise that topic, John, because it is so raw and it is so close to the surface for all of us. Right. Right. it's very difficult. And when parents are just trying to get through the day, I'm not sharing that with them. But when I do this kind of work, I have to do it because we have got to change our policies or we'll just keep doing what we've always done and we're going to get what we've always been getting.
0: My thanks to Maxine Chair of Autism Goggles for agreeing to be interviewed for this episode of Special Parents Confidential. And Be sure to check out our next episode when we interview her son and partner in Autism Goggles, Daniel Scherstrom. We have links to the blog articles we talked about and the Autism Goggles website on the page for this episode at specialparentsconfidential.com. A great way for you to connect with us is by liking our Facebook page. You can comment on this episode and share it with your friends in your status updates. We have a button that links right to our Facebook page on our website as well. There are also buttons for all the social media sites that we use. Please help spread the word about Special Parents Confidential with all your favorite social media sites. And that's it for this episode of Special Parents Confidential. I'm John Pellegrini. Thanks for listening.